Welcome to the Institute of World Mission Weekly Podcast, a show for Adventist mission enthusiasts striving to live, serve, and witness cross-culturally. Visit us at iwm.adventist.org slash podcast to view this podcast's show notes, links, and previous episodes. Institute of World Mission is your partner in the mission field. Welcome back, friends, to the Institute of World Mission podcast. Today's interview is part of the series on honor and shame dynamics. Honor and shame, as you very well know, is foundational to most majority world cultures. It simply is too big and important for us as cross-cultural workers to miss. It would be a mistake not to have a grasp of it, not to have a working knowledge of how honor and shame dynamics impact almost everything in your host culture. This is our third installment in the series on honor and shame already. Right after the interview, I will share a few more details with you about this series on our podcast, what we've done already, what's coming and when. Now, as you remember, Gabriela Phillips leads out in this series. Gabriela serves as a director of the Adventist Muslim Relations Department for the North American Division. And in this capacity, she is able to find the best thinkers and practitioners on this topic, friends. And today is no different. Gabriela's counterpart is Jason George. And at this point, let me pass the mic right to Gabriela to introduce Dr. George and his extensive work and to lead out in this interview. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode on our series on honor and shame with me, Gabby Phillips from Adventist Muslim Relations in the North American Division in collaboration with the Institute of World Mission. And today I am really honored to bring before you Jason George. It's a real treat for us to have someone of his experience and so well known to, to share with us a very important topic. Those of you who are not familiar with him, I hope you will after this podcast, and not just familiar with him, but with his work, his website, and his books. Jason George is part of a ministry team involved in church planting, currently living in the Middle East. And probably some of you have already benefited from his amazing website, dealing with different aspects of honor shame. And the reason Jason, George, and I will be talking today is because we want to explore part of his latest work on patron-client relations and uh, what are the implications for those of us in ministry. So without further ado, thank you so much, Jason, for being willing to be part of this conversation. Thank you, Gabriella. It's my honor. Thank you. So, Jason, help us to get a picture, a visual image of patron-client relationships. What are we talking about in when we talk about patron-client relationships? Yeah, that's a good question, Gabby. I can try to give a, a quick definition on that. A patron-client relationship, it's simply a reciprocal relationship between unequal people. So there's two people and they have an ongoing relationship. It's not just a one-time exchange. But because they are of different status, one person is kind of a higher status, you know, he or she is the patron. And because of that, you know, they might provide protection or money or help to someone else. And the person who receives that we call the client. And the client, because, you know, in these sort of cultures, they're very reciprocal and there's the expectation to give back 
whenever you receive something, they, they want to give back, they desire to give back, but they're unable to give back in kind. And so instead of give, repaying materially, they often repay socially. And so they, they pay off their debt or their, oblig, their social obligation by honoring the patron, maybe by voting for him or you know, singing his praise in public type of thing. And so that's kind of the, the short definition of patronage. And one thing to remember, though, is that, you know, in many cultures, patronage is how, or in, in honor-shame cultures, patronage is typically the main economic or the main system for relationships that people just assume. And so patronage isn't like a, it, it isn't something that people think about or people realize. That category of patron-client relationship, it's more of a, like a technical or academic social category that people have used to describe how relationships work in majority rural cultures. Okay, uh, so let me make sure I'm, I'm following you here. So you are talking about a sort of relationship where there is, I would say, protection as a core value that yeah. uh, the one who, who is on top, if we want to use that uh, terminology, actually offers a number of ways, of services, I think that's the word you use, but ultimately it offers protection. And then the other people respond to this protection with some sort of loyalty, honor, singing yeah. the praise and so forth. Can you think of any biblical example of uh, patron-client relations? Yeah, yeah, there's quite a few. In, in the Old Testament, a very clear example would be the book of Ruth, the person of Boaz. Think of all the things that he provides for Naomi and Ruth. And I think it's a helpful example because You know, many people, especially Westerners, when they hear the word patronage, they just think it means money. But if you look right. at the story of Boaz and all the things that he does for them, right? He, he mm. allows Ruth to sit at the table. He protects her and tells his workers, like, hey, don't touch her. He right. sends her home with a whole sack of grain. And then, you know, he even buys the land back. He marries her and provides a child for the family. And so, yeah, money is an aspect of it in the story of Boaz, but there's so many more things he does. The main thing he really does is protect their honor or, you know, he lifts them up from that state of shame that they have as foreigners and widows and preserves their family or, or continues their family. And so that would be one Old Testament example Beautiful. or kind of stepping back a bigger picture yes. would be Yahweh and his relationship with Israel. You know, you think about the things that Yahweh gave to Israel. He gave yeah. them land. He gave them military victory, prosperity. He took care of them. But then in return, he expected them to obey his commands, to be loyal, to trust God for those things. And so that's also a type of patron-client relationship. Beautiful. So what we see here is that it's way bigger than money. And probably what he speaks is of the generosity of the patron as one of the qualities of being a good patron. For sure, yeah, their generosity and their faithfulness, their loyalty. Because remember, in these collectivistic societies, when a person ha has wealth or has power, they have to share it with other people. Right. You know, they're not the only ones that benefit from it. They have to share those benefits. And so a patron is somebody who, who is very generous in helping other people solve their problems. Beautiful. So let me ask you now, what layers of biblical meaning we miss? when we are blinded to patron-client relations? 
<laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I think on one level, you know, there's kind of the hermeneutical, you know, we might miss some of the implied cultural values and biblical stories. You know, I mentioned the story of Boaz and Ruth, or there's parables of Jesus. It's amazing how many parables that Jesus offers or in stories that talk about this, I talk about money. And assumed in that are patron-client relationships as well. So on one level, yeah, we, we miss out on these cultural assumptions behind the stories. But then another level, I think our very core relationship with God, we might say in some ways as a patron-client relationship. And I think better understanding the nature of grace. So in the ancient world, this Greek word charis, mm-hmm. it meant a gift from a patron to a client. And everyone was giving charis to one another. Patrons were giving charis to to those in their community. And sure enough, when the Bible wants to talk about the gift of salvation from God, they use the same word charis. And Mm -hmm. I think for, for people like me from a Protestant tradition, we think that the gift has no strings attached, so to speak. Right. But I think we forget that God gives us the gift of salvation in order to create a relationship. He wants an ongoing, right. enduring relationship. That's what that's what a gift does. That's what charis means. And then on the flip side, you know, what are we to give back to God? It's pistis. Well, that's also a very common word that's rooted in patron-client relationships. Pistis referred to the faithfulness yes. of the client, yes. you know, their their faithfulness or their trustworthiness to re, to honor the patron or to repay back what the patron has given. And so often we just think faith is just like a mental assent. But in reality, biblical faith, it, it's true trust in the patron and a desire to honor him for his good gifts. So this is a whole relational way of understanding the scriptures. And thank you so much for sharing that about the gift, because often we think that the gift is an end in itself, but it almost sounds like it's a, it's a door that opens to an invitation for a relationship. And I have experienced that myself working in the Middle East, that when someone yeah. gives you food or offers their hospitality or gives you a, a gift, they are inviting you to enter into a deeper level of the relationship. It's not just simply, you know, bringing some material good because you needed it or something like that. So can you talk a little more about this idea of a salvation as a gift that opens the door to loyalty in a way? Because it seems to me that this is very loaded for us to know how to present the gospel in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. You're absolutely right in terms of how people in the Middle East and this part of the world, or even Asian contexts, and even many Latin contexts, they just intuitively understand that relationships are reciprocal. And so, yeah, when you do give something, the expectation is that the person would give in response to it. And, you know, I grew up in America, and there's a part of it is if I gave a gift to you, for example, Gabby in America, and there was any hint that I expected something back from you, that's like corrupted or that's considered, you know, very immoral. But in many parts of the world, that's completely natural. They don't think twice. When it comes to salvation as well, there's been lots of research. Biblical scholars, as they've started to understand the Greco-Roman world, have realized that that is how relationships also functioned in antiquity in the first century Roman Empire. And so, yeah, our relationship with God, he is what we could say is a patron. He provides for us. He protects us. He takes care of us. 
and that creates a new relationship and not just an individual relationship but god's creating a, a kingdom of people it creates a whole new community and as a result we receive a gift from god and the expectation is both that we repay him by honoring him or glorifying him but then all throughout scripture the idea is that we have received from god and therefore we are able to pay that forward to others and we're able to share that with others and so Paul's always talking about how the churches you know are supposed to come together and unite together in a sense for god's grace to one another amen beautiful you mentioned how this whole issue of giving gifts could be misinterpreted when read from a different dynamics that are not within the honor shame context so here is my question isn't this model based on equality basically because the patron is powerful and the client is in need of that power a system that is prone to abuse and how can this model work in a healthy way and what are the problems of the patron client relationship Mm, yeah, I think uh, that club, there's another episode here for us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what you hit, in, hit on is kind of the, that's the question when it comes to patronage. And to answer your question is, yes, because there is inequality in the relationship and because everyone is in the natural tendency for people to abuse that power. And so that's what I mean. I think patronage explored in theology and in missiology is because for many people, patronage is inherently wrong and bad and evil. It's corruption, it's paternalism, right. it's nepotism. Yes. And so we dismiss it because we assume that all relationships have to be equal. And right. so especially in the Western tradition, egalitarianism is very important that right. everyone relates to the same. And that's a, that is an ideal. But the reality is, in many cultures of the world, not everyone is equal, and there really isn't an expectation that people would be equal either. Right. And so patronage is a way for unequal people to relate to one another in a healthy, transforming way. And so the question is, what does what does a benevolent patron look like? What does a patron do? And I would say in the Bible, you know, all throughout Scripture, you know, Paul, as he's writing to these churches or as Jesus is, is teaching the clubs, they're always redefining patronage in two key ways. They're making it God-centered. They're putting their patronage relationship in the context of a God-centered worldview where God is the ultimate patron. He's the one who gives the gifts mm. and he's the one who gets the glory, not the human patron. So we are kind and of the, the brokers. One, I would, that's exactly it. Yeah. So that kind of introduces the third idea, you know, these relationships are complex. There's not just two people, but often there's an intermediary, a broker who facilitates the relationship. Right. And so, yeah, we, we humans are the brokers. And so this is what Paul does in Philippians 4. You know, as he receives the gift from them, Paul is, is the client. And naturally they would expect the Philippians would expect Paul to honor them and praise them. But Paul is very deliberate and saying, hey guys, this gift, I thank God for it, and you are very generous, but the gift is not from you. The gift is from mm. God, and therefore he gets all the glory, not just you guys. Okay, beautiful, right. So basically what he's doing is redeeming the system instead of destroying it. <laughs> so that's very important. Now, Jason, yeah. let me ask you, since you live in the Middle East and those who will be listening and wow. are already in this cross-cultural setting, 
one of the, the, the challenges that missionaries face is the local people often assume them as patron or invite them to step into that role. And uh, they feel very uncomfortable because of the things you describe, especially on in terms of when people come and ask for financial help, you know, my son is sick, can you help us with the medicine or can you mediate power situation, you know, so forth. What kind of advice, what do you tell someone that comes from the West? Any practical tips of wisdom as how to enter into this kind of relationship in a, in a way that will be honorable? Yeah, I mean, that's something I face and I certainly don't have all the answers and I'm still, you know, every time I feel like I encounter that, I struggle to know. And I think, you know, one thing, patronage is not a key that provides all the answers, but it just helps me better understand what are these assumed dynamics that are going on so I can make better choices in these situations. You know, I would say that understand that patronage is an enduring relationship and so if in these times people are inviting you to be relationship and it's interesting they can often you know extend for multiple generations as well and so it's a long-term enduring relationship that you're entering that I would not say there's an obligation to to do it or to help out you might just want to give and that's just an act of charity and you want to give and and that's fine you can do that but if you want to have a, a more patronage reciprocal relationship I would say look for those relationships that you're going to encounter people for a long period of time. And then also look for the type of relationships where you can input spiritually or emotionally. You know, if people only want material things from you or financial things, then I don't think that's actually a genuine relationship. That That's not going to work as patronage. And so what you can do is, you know, look for the type of relationships where people are open to growing and changing and, and you know, receiving input from you. And on the flip side as well is remember that patronage is not simply a one-way a one-way relationship look for ways to receive from the other person as well because they're going to seek ways to want to repay you by honoring you and so allow them those opportunities or what happens is if you only give and give and give is people feel buried under this pile of social debt that they can never pay off. And so feel free to receive, you know, they might honor you by having you over or might give you a, a token type of gift. And sometimes we don't want to receive that, but I think it is important to receive that and to acknowledge the honor that they're giving as well. Thank you, Jason, for sharing that. I currently have a sister who has moved into our home for the last six, seven weeks. She and her children are staying with us. And believe it or not, even though intellectually I had understood this, from the very beginning of the relationship, she wanted to have me cooking, cleaning, you know, doing the laundry. And I felt like, no, 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 no. You know, that egalitarian part of me is like, no, no, sister, you know, don't worry. You don't have to do anything in the house. And then three days later, my husband said, this is not okay, Gabby, because this is her way of showing that she's grateful. And every time you say no, you put her in a position that she doesn't have any any way, concrete way that is familiar to her to show appreciation. And so we had been blessed by her cooking and we share stories. And suddenly I realized that that's what you yeah. are saying. You know, I can see it now happening right here in our kitchen <laughs> every day. So it's yeah. a very, very oh, wow, beautiful that's a great thing. example. Yeah. Jason, personally, how understanding patron client and all these studies that you have done and continue to do has helped you 
in your ministry? Can you think any concrete story yeah, I mean, or concrete business? Yeah, concrete stories. Yeah, it's interesting. As I've learned about patronage or honor and shame, my, my, my main motive at the beginning has always been to be more effective in ministry. But then what I realize is that the main application often tends to be personal and spiritual for me. It really has transformed the nature of my relationship with God and understanding the, the importance of gratitude or mm. a sense of loyalty or my desire to praise God and honor Him is rooted in this. So it's given a new depth to my relationship with God as well, personally. And then I think in terms of ministry as well, I, I think kind of at a cultural linguistic level, I've been able to better understand the, the nuances of certain words now that I understand patron or client patronage and these sort of reciprocal relationships. And then I think as well, one role that I often find mediating or find myself playing is that of kind of a cultural mediator or translator, especially helping Westerners process their relationships with Middle Easterners and help them observe some of the dynamics that are going on, and vice versa, helping Middle Easterners understand Westerners at times as well. And so, because both of those cultures, they want to have a relationship, especially among believers, but then they realize, wow, the way they do things is different. And then, you know, there's a tendency to judge or critique that, and so to help them kind of translate to see those assumptions that they have on that. Right. Well, thank you, because that's exactly what you are doing for us right now, <laughs> taking that, that role. I have maybe two more questions before we wrap yeah. up today. And talk about Jesus. How does he operated as the patron who said, hey, I empty myself and I wash people's feet? Mm-hmm. What kind of model did he come to establish for a patron, especially when he tells his, sir, his disciples, well, there will be no more masters after me. From our, from the, uh, today onwards, all of you are to do what I do, you know, and be humble and so forth. Isn't that a complete reversal of the patron client? What What do you see there? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a good question. People often assume that Jesus came and kind of obliterated the system, and he does radically transform it for sure. So one thing that's interesting is in Acts 10, when Peter is summarizing, you know, the ministry of Jesus in one of his sermons, he says that Jesus went around benefacting. And so the way the apostles understood Jesus' ministry is that he provided He functioned as a patron, as a benefactor. And so he provided healing. He provided food to people. He protected, gave them, you know, large feasts. He created a new family for them, delivered people from bondage and so on. And naturally, you know, in the Gospels, what you see is that what happens when people are healed by Jesus, they go and they sing his praises and the fame of Jesus continues to spread. And so Jesus, you know, continued to function within that framework. A great story is Luke chapter 7, where the centurion has a sick worker, and he he can't find anyone to help him, so he comes to Jesus, who is a stronger, more powerful patron. And so Jesus himself helps in that situation. But one thing that Jesus is always doing as well is he's critiquing the bad patrons, especially the leaders of Israel at that time, essentially they were like bad shepherds who were fleecing the sheep. 
And Jesus comes along and saying, hey, these are a bunch of sheep who don't have shepherd. And what that's doing is that's pulling forward the Old Testament prophetic critique of the leaders of Israel are not taking care of God's sheep. And God says, well, one day I'm going to come and I'm going to take care of the hungry. I'm going to be the shepherd. I myself will protect them. I'll bring all the scattered sheep back together. And Jesus is that. That's the role of the Messiah is to create that new community uh, of sheep, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so I don't kind of end up, you know, one other thing that Jesus does is he he tells his followers how to give and how to share. And one thing that's interesting is that they, one, aren't simply to give things, but they're to give service. They're supposed to give their, their being. And then two, who they give to are people that can't repay. Because Jesus says, what good is it if you give to someone who's going to repay you? Because that's how the Gentiles do it. They're trying to do this tit-for-tat reciprocity. But mm-hmm. what's interesting is Jesus doesn't just say, oh, don't worry about repayment or reciprocity is not important. But Jesus actually puts it in the context of a much bigger relationship in which as we give, as we share our lives and as we serve people, we do get repaid, but it gets repaid in the future by God himself. And so Jesus continues to appeal to that kind of reciprocal logic or, or that deeper relationship, but he puts it in kind of an eschatological framework in which, in which our gifts or our services are, are repaid in the future. Wow. I think that this touches a core value of the scriptures and is that we don't live for ourselves. So even mm. the Patreon who it's in a power relationship or a power situation, Ultimately, it's not about him, but either your patron or your client, it's always about the altruistic way of life, always looking mm-hmm. outward, always serving. And yeah. so the patron actually he's basically channeling the, the blessings that God has given him into the larger community. And then mm-hmm. when he receives back something, he turns that back to God. So God gets yeah. the glory of um, mm-hmm. this beautiful. Yeah. One way I say it is that bad patrons are often life-sucking. They try to get as much out of clients or get as much honor out of the clients as possible. Yes. But good patrons are life-giving. They're wow. always looking ways to, to bless clients, those who receive them, or lift them up and to empower empower clients so that they can become patrons who ensure and bless other people. So I think that's a real key of biblical patronage is it's God-centered and life-giving. Life-centered and God-centered. Okay, well, you summarized it beautifully, Jason. I was trying to say something close to that through many words. Oh, you did. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So my last point here is obviously God is calling us to, to be patron brokers because he is the final patron. Yeah. But and that perhaps would be easier for us than the, what I'm going to ask you. And it's how can we be good clients? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we go to these settings and we think, well, you know, we are in a power position because we came. They didn't come yeah. to us. But what if God wants us to enter into a client relationship? Have you encountered that? And if so, how would that look like? That's a wonderful question. Yeah, because it, it does get in the assumption, obviously, that the person who's doing full-time ministry must be the patron. Right. But what I found, it's actually kind of the opposite, is often they are they are the client. And I think simply by virtue of the fact that we are, we are living as a host in a foreign country, we are under other people. 
And so right. remember that hospitality or the guest host relationship is yes. a is one model of a patron client relationship, right? Yes. The host provides and the guest kind of honors or thanks them. And so by virtue of living in a in a, my non-passport country, I am a guest here and I am under other people. And then another mm-hmm. thing I've often found works very well is I am not as competent in terms of getting things done, whether it be documents or shopping or solving social problems as I am when I'm in America. And I often rely upon the help of other people. And so what I, I find very effective is just to make myself a client and ask someone, say, oh, I, I have a problem here. Can you help me solve this problem? Mm. And what I have found is most people are genuinely glad and helpful to help me solve the problem. They, they're just hardwired to be a patron, to use their resources, to use their connections to help other people out. So they're genuinely happy to do it. And of course, you know, part of the motive is, you know, they they will get honored in return for helping solve my problem. And that's the way the, the relationship works. But I often find that if I look for ways to be a client, it allows other people the opportunity to help help me and in turn receive a healthy sense of honor from that. So whenever I have a problem, I'm trying to think in my mind, okay, how can I effectively ask this person to be my patron? Of course, I don't use that language, right, um, but right. kind of indirectly. So you see a, a problem as an opportunity for developing relationships. Yeah, mm-hmm. as much as I don't like problems. Right, uh, right, right. You don't welcome them, but uh, <laughs> very good. Any final advice for those who are ministering this culture? You know, common errors people make, things they say, things they do, things they fail to do, like in my story, that might be helpful for... Yeah, I would say just a common thing is to realize that patronage is not inherently wrong or it's not evil, it's not corrupt. Now, most most of our encounters with patronage are broken and are unhealthy. I admit that. But that doesn't mean that we can't, as believers, redeem the system and make it a healthy model for mm-hmm. a relationship. I think of grammar or, or patronage is kind of the grammar for relationships. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like I am using English grammar right now to communicate meaning, we can use the grammar of patronage in order to bless people and form healthier relationships. It takes a lot of sanctification, you know, in our own hearts, and it takes a lot of creativity because there's not a lot of models of good, benevolent patrons. But I do think it's possible, and we can look to God, especially, you know, Yahweh in the Old Testament, different figures all throughout Scripture, and then how Jesus and Paul function to navigate these patron-client relationships throughout their ministries as well. And they can inspire us to continue in that same story. Beautiful, beautiful. Jason, I know you have so much more to tell us, and I want to appreciate the time you have gifted us with. And help us here with resources. I know you have just finished writing a book or it's already published. I'm not exactly sure where you stand on that. And I know you have videos on your website. So how can those listening to this podcast access to access to those resources? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the easiest is I created a webpage, honorshame.com slash patronage. And it has some videos there and some articles that I've written on it and then information about other books that have been written on it as well. So that's the easiest kind of one one okay. page portal. And then from there, you can go off and, and to read, you know, what interests you. So that's honorshame.com backslash patronage. Perfect. What about your book? Where do we find your book? 
Yeah, so it's written and finished, but it's not quite out yet. It comes out in November, and the book is called Ministering in Patronage Cultures with IVP Academic. So you can find it at the IVP website or on Amazon, of course. Amazon, I was going to say, yeah. And previously, you have written a very helpful book called Ministering Ownership Cultures, and I can't remember the second part of the title. Yeah, that's what it's called, honor, Ministering in Honor, Shame Cultures. And so it's kind of a, just, well, the title is pretty self-explanatory, right? right and right, so it's right. really written for long-term workers, people trying to understand the theological and cultural underpinnings of honor and shame. And I am, I have to acknowledge I am indebted to you because there's a, a wonderful story about <laughs> peacemaking that I borrowed from you. And I think that's actually how we met as I reached out and I yeah, and I think I, actually, I forgotten <laughs> that that's yeah. how we met. Yes. Well, you are very gracious, Jason. Thank you once more and God bless you in your ministry. And please keep writing and putting wonderful resources on your web page. We have been blessed and we are looking forward to continue this relationship. So God bless uh, you. And thanks again. Thank you so much, Gabrielle. It's my pleasure. Blessings. Bye-bye. Bye. As promised, let me quickly orient you to a couple previous episodes in this series on honor and shame. So far, we aired two more interviews. In episodes 33 and 34, which are two parts of the same interview with Johnny Hajaj, Gabrielle and Johnny discussed the role of hospitality in honor and shame cultures. If you haven't listened to these and you are interested in this topic, please go back in your feed in your podcasting app or on our website. Find those episodes and listen to them. In another interview, which we aired in episodes 41 and 42, again, two parts of the same interview, Gabriela interviews Philip Saman. This time, they look at how honor and shame values play out in the Bible and in the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, friends, we feel so strongly about this topic that we decided to create a special theme page on the IWM website. Now, you can find this page at iwm.adventist.org forward slash honor dash shame. To view this page, you'll need to have a free membership account. Now, that's a given for our theme pages. Now, once on it, make sure you click follow this topic button. All right, so let me say it again. Follow this topic button. It's big red button on your right, a little bit up in the top right corner. If you'd like to be notified when the next interview will be aired, you'll want to just simply click that one button. At current rate, we are airing one interview in this series every six weeks. My name is Alex Ott, and I'm looking forward to seeing you next week.